Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 6, The Forgotten Years. Welcome back, folks. I hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode on the Siege of Toulon, the event that brought Napoleon onto the world stage, and reaffirmed the Republic's resolve in the face of growing existential threats to her existence. This week, however, we're going to see France's First Republic under Maximilian Robespierre fall not to the guns of foreign armies, but to the powerless of her de facto dictator, who, if you remember back from Episode 3, had by this point become mad with paranoia from previous assassination attempts and threats to his control over the Committee of Public Safety. But while we know that Robespierre would fall in short order, what exactly happened to Napoleon in the immediate aftermath of Toulon? You see, while the vast majority of Napoleon's major exploits are well chronicled and recounted as if they were biblical canon, it's tough to get a grasp on some of the quote-unquote forgotten years of Napoleon's life. That is, his campaigns that are less celebrated, largely because they didn't play a major role in the geopolitical game that was being played at any given moment. But Napoleon never saw it this way. And as we'll see this week, some of these forgotten periods ended up being the ones that gave Napoleon the campaign experience he would need as France moves on from the fall of Robespierre to the rise of the Directory, where our friend Napoleon Bonaparte becomes, well, Napoleon. Many of these areas had smaller populations, and thus they knew their parish priests and noblemen on personal levels, forming closer relationships and bonds with them. This led to the peasantry being treated... As we mentioned at the end of last week's episode, Napoleon's tactical brilliance at the Siege of Toulon vaulted him to fame not just with his generals, but throughout the French ruling elites. And while this must have been a coup of sorts for his personal ambition, Napoleon's victory gave the Committee of Public Safety and the War Council the confidence that they needed that they could win the War of the First Coalition. Giving Napoleon further commands, they believed, would help ensure their now offensive campaigns would be enough to turn the tide of the war. Now, in the immediate aftermath of Toulon, Napoleon was made the artillery commander of the Army of Italy, the French deployment to southeastern France along the border of the Kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia. Now, at this point, we're still about 60 years away from Giuseppe Garibaldi and the unification of the Italian peninsula. So while Italian nationalism did exist, the country that we today call Italy was split into numerous kingdoms, papal states, and oligarchic republics, many with their own competing interests against the others. Now, France knew this, and while much of Italy did have a common enemy in the French Republic, again, most of the states were monarchies and didn't exactly want revolutionary ideals being spread throughout their peninsula, Attacking each of these states separately would be critical to ensuring France's control of their southern border specifically and Italian influence in the region generally. So, in February of 1794, just two months after the siege of Toulon, Napoleon was ordered to take part in the campaign against Piedmont Sardinia. Now, this campaign, while little remembered today in the grand scheme of the War of the First Coalition as well as in the context of Napoleon's battle record, was extremely important for Napoleon's future conquest. Firstly, it gave Napoleon a good understanding of the local terrain, especially as the Army of Italy had to pass through the Ligurian Alps. 
Now, not to skip ahead a few years, but I think many of us who have even a basic knowledge of Napoleon understand just how critical his scouting of the treacherous Alps would prove to be. Secondly, it was in this unit that Napoleon would meet and fight alongside a man who would, in time, prove to be one of his great marshals, Andre Massena. Now, as I mentioned last week, I'm going to dedicate an entire couple of episodes to Napoleon's battle tactics as well as his top generals, all of whom would go on to become marshals of the empire. So I won't give away too much on Massena today, but just know that in short order, he would prove to be one of Napoleon's most skilled and trusted battle technicians in the field. And Napoleon's admiration for him would begin during the Piedmontese campaign. Because as for the campaign itself, it was an utter rout for the French forces, crushing the Piedmontese and their Austrian allies in just under two months, thanks in no large part to the battle plan of General Massena and the offensive input that was submitted via Napoleon. In the Second Battle of Saorgio from April 24th to the 28th, the French struck northeastward along what is now the Italian Riviera, seized the small but strategic port of Oneglia, and from there struck north to seize the towns in the upper Tanaro Valley. Now from here, the French then turned west to outflank the positions around Saorgio, modern-day Saorge in France, by the way, and forced the coalition forces to withdraw. The French then followed and routed them at the Col de Tenda, forcing their complete retreat. The campaign netted the French complete control of the Italian Riviera and gave them a strategic staging ground for future campaigns into Italy. Massena's tactical brilliance earned him the nickname, quote, the darling child of victory, while Napoleon's artillery support garnered him much praise throughout the ranks. And by the way, if you're keeping score at home, because I know I am, that now makes Napoleon 2-0 in battles that he's fought in. So let's see how he does when it's all said and done after Waterloo. After the Piedmontese campaign, Napoleon had generated much attention in the Committee of Public Safety for future proposals for the region. Now, I think by now we've all come to look at Napoleon as a big dreamer, a man who sees the bigger picture in the grand scheme of the chess game that is European geopolitics. And boy, oh boy, did he have a big picture for what was to come for the rest of Italy. Writing from the vantage point of a conquering hero after the victorious campaign in Piedmont, Sardinia, Napoleon proposed invading the rest of Italy to help destabilize their alliance with Austria, who, if you haven't gotten the clue by now, is going to be the target of nearly every French campaign for, like, the next 20 years. Wanting to annihilate the Austrians, he believed that Italy, and other allies Spain, would then fall on their own, allowing for fellow quote-unquote sister republics to hold under French supervision. It was an incredibly bold idea, but he knew that seizing the momentum that they had would be critical to winning the war. It certainly didn't hurt Napoleon that Augustine Robespierre was attached to the Army of Italy as their relay back to the Committee of Public Safety, which of course helped review his proposals. Now, while the successive victorious campaigns were a boon for Napoleon and the French military at large, the political situation back in Paris was about to hit its climax. In July of 1794, Napoleon was sent on a secret mission of the Republic of Genoa by the order of Augustine Robespierre to scout out their fortifications in the event of an assault on the region, as well as to probe their amiability towards the French cause among the public. But we all know what happened in July of 1794, because we all listened to episode 3. Just as Napoleon was getting back to southern France from that expedition, ready with valuable intelligence to be shared to the Committee of Public Safety, the coup of Nine Thermidor ousted Maximilian Robespierre from power, and he, along with Brother Augustine and other Jacobins, were all sent to the guillotine to join the thousands of lost souls that they themselves had sent there over the previous months. 
Napoleon could hardly enjoy his older brother Joseph's wedding in peace while celebrating his victories for hardly a week. With his patronage of Augustine and his well-known Jacobin leanings, Napoleon was now a marked man. And indeed, had he been in Paris on that fateful July day instead of near Nice, it's almost certain he likely would have joined his compatriot Jacobin brethren in adding their heads to the awaiting wicker basket. But we all know that Napoleon was spared that fate. I mean, it would be tough to proclaim Napoleon a titan of history had this been a swan song, and obviously it was not. But that didn't mean Napoleon was in the clear. Not by a long shot. Nearly two weeks after Thermidor, Napoleon was arrested in Nice, jailed, and charged with conspiring to attack Marseille rather than defend it due to his complaints about battery placement around the city. Now, whether this was all political show or just a means of throwing every legal book at every Jacobin is, of course, all up for debate. But France was not even two years removed from the September massacres, so political reprisals were still fresh in everyone's minds, especially on the minds of a bunch of pissed-off, recently reinstated Girondins. Making Napoleon's situation even more precarious was that Salicetti, of all people, in an effort to save his own life, looked for anything he could find to incriminate Napoleon. That Salicetti was denounced by the Thermidoran reactionaries as being too Jacobin. And honestly, had the roles been switched in an alternative universe where the Jacobins seized power in a coup and not the Thermidorians and Napoleon had Girondin leanings, it's very likely Napoleon's story would have ended right then and there. But thankfully for our story, the Thermidorians were not the Jacobins. And thankfully for Napoleon, he was freed on lack of evidence and reportedly was treated well while in custody even bantering with many of the prison guards who were holding him captive. But the fall of Robespierre did leave Napoleon in a quasi-military-political limbo, much like France's political situation in general. We ended episode three right about here, with the fall of Robespierre, the Thermidorian reaction, and the introduction of the Directory. Now, the Directory wouldn't officially be formed until the latter part of 1795, so this quasi-interregnum period that we call the Thermidorian Reaction was still meeting as the National Convention, but they were fighting amongst each other as to how they were going to form a new government, draft a new constitution, keep funding the war, etc., etc. All this to say that with so much going on in Paris, Napoleon got a little time to himself, and he was able to pursue his first serious love interest, Ms. Desiree Glary. Now, we're going to back up a bit to introduce Miss Glary because it's important to note that Napoleon, despite his entire legend being built on military exploits, he was still a young man looking for a future wife. Much of the time in these legendary tales, we often forget the personal lives these figures live, and telling these stories are a great way to make them at least somewhat relatable. Humanizing them, if you will. So, let's introduce Desiree Clary. Napoleon's first love, and the future queen of Sweden and Norway. Desiree Clary was born in November 1777, so she was about seven and a half years younger than Napoleon. Born into a wealthy merchant family, Clary had a brother, Nicolas Joseph, and an older sister, Julie. Initially educated in convent schooling, as was common practice for gentry children at the time, Clary was still a young child when the revolution broke out in 1789, which forced all convents to close and required her to continue limited schooling back at home. 
1794, during the height of the Reign of Terror, Glaury's father, François, died, which caused problems for the family as he had tried to become ennobled prior to his death. And if we've learned anything about the French Revolution over the previous five episodes, it's that those pesky Jacobins sure did not take a kind liking to nobles of any ilk, and Glaury's brother, now head of the household, was arrested instead. Desiree went to speak on her brother's behalf, essentially professing his innocence, and in the process, she met a young man by the name of Joseph Bonaparte. Inviting Joseph to their home, Joseph met and fell in love with Desiree's sister, Julie. They married in July of 1794, and it was through their courtship that Desiree met another young Bonaparte, brother Napoleon. Now, if you remember all the way back to our first episode, I mentioned how the defining authority figure in Napoleon's young life was his mother. But Napoleon, for as radical as his political leanings would have you believe, was about as traditionalist as it came when it pertained to women, seeing him as, how should I put it, lesser beings. An earlier adherent to the feminist movement, he was not, but it is ironic that Napoleon did prefer to have women educated and well-read so that they could converse intelligently with men. He enjoyed, indeed, he promoted, the idea of an educated woman in an era where it was all but reserved for the elite. But, of course, as far as any further advancement in society, that was the end of the road. That would even argue he promoted their education as a way to further enhance their male partners rather than for their own advancement in an already heavily entrenched patriarchal society. And his relationship with Desiree would come to play a large part in his wider view on women in this society, as well as his feelings on love. But I digress, because... We'll have time for Napoleon and gender roles in society as we get into the Napoleonic Code, whenever we get into the Napoleonic Code. Anyway, back to darling Desiree. As far as Napoleon was concerned, it was love at first sight. They exchanged love letters, he would encourage her to read and dance, and he would address her with the more familiar du form, rather than the more formal vu. Before long, they were engaged, and had the winds of the times been different, Perhaps it would be here that Napoleon would have called it a career and settled down with his young wife and started a family. But in the aftermath of Nine Thermidor, these were still tumultuous times. Then Napoleon was still on duty, and there was still a lot of work to be done. And in that duty, there would be further lessons learned. A little bit closer to home, though, for our boy Napoleon, back home in Corsica. In March of 1795, Napoleon left Marseille with a fleet of 15 ships, 1,200 guns, and nearly 17,000 men on their way to recapture Corsica from the British and our old friend Pasquale Paoli. But before they could even approach the island, they were intercepted by a smaller British fleet with half the sailors Napoleon had at his disposal, and he was forced to retreat. And Napoleon was able to shed responsibility for the misfortune, but this small, seemingly innocuous skirmish in the Mediterranean would be a nice little precursor to the great Achilles heel of Napoleon's military career, naval warfare. Napoleon was never able to exhibit the same mastery of the seas that he would go on to display on the battlefields of Europe in the coming years. And a little spoiler alert, it would be this Achilles heel that would play such a massive role in his inevitable downfall. It's ironic on two fronts. The first, a little closer to home. Napoleon, if you recall from episode one, originally wanted to enter the Naval Academy, but was dissuaded when his mother was afraid that he would drown at sea. 
But perhaps the more pertinent reason was that he was never able to understand the concept that all because he had superior numbers, that this would translate to victory over a tactically superior opponent. And it's here where the irony lays because this is the same type of concept that he would display on land against the entire continent of Europe. But he never was able to have it fully translate on the open seas. Now look, we'll get into the trappings of the French Navy down the road, but it is good to remember moving forward that for all of Napoleon's hubris that we will come to see on land, the same could not be said for the battles at sea. And indeed, in the long list of victories that Napoleon would add to his legendary resume, not a single one was on the open ocean. But we'll leave Napoleon the sailor here for now, and I'm almost confident Napoleon likely would have wanted to be left there as well, but he had other trappings on land that needed attending to. After the failed expedition to retake Corsica, Napoleon's service time was nearing its end, and he would soon be unemployed. Now, despite having attained the rank of brigadier general, Napoleon was actually pretty low on the rung of authority when compared to the entrenched military hierarchy. Being a general in 1795 wasn't exactly like being a general in, say, World War II. In fact, there were over 200 generals in France, and Napoleon was among the lower three-quarters of them seniority-wise. But as we've mentioned now close to a thousand times, Napoleon was just too ambitious to call it quits right there. And so he did seek postings in other departments. Soon after returning to the mainland, Napoleon would be sent to Brest to join the Army of the West under the command of General Lazar Hoche. Now, Hoche himself is often considered to be among some of the great early revolutionary military leaders. His upcoming victory in Brittany over royalist forces was of critical importance to the newly formed directory. But Napoleon was only a year younger than Hoche, and he believed that being in the same army as him would prevent his own further advancement. Also, having spent the last two years on campaigns against foreign enemies in France, he wasn't exactly keen on being posted to an army that was being ordered to kill Frenchmen during said royalist revolts. Well, at least not yet. So, Napoleon decided to try his luck in Paris, hoping that there he could request a transfer to a different unit or be put in command of another campaign in a foreign theater of the war. He was pretty confident that, despite his past Jacobin connections, he would be able to get a better posting. After all, the retributionary violence had toned down, the Girondins were ready to move on, and Napoleon had already proven his steadfast loyalty to the French in his victories at Toulon and Saraggio. But those in the war ministry did not seem to share the same sentiment as Napoleon did. When he reached Paris and requested a transfer to another posting, he actually received a downgraded offer to command not artillery, but infantry in the Vendée. Insulted, Napoleon decided to pull the ultimate young Napoleon move and continued to receive pay as a general, but with no deployment. He feigned sickness, again, and essentially took a sabbatical in Paris, enjoying the sights of a city he would come to reign in a few short years, and he would also try his best to enjoy the company of women, embarking on a social life to fill that void in his life. But hold on a second. Didn't we just go over his engagement to the young Desiree Clarie? Wasn't he madly in love with her? Well, yes, he was, but while on his way to Paris, he did write to Desiree numerous times, even saying in one letter that he was, quote, much afflicted at the thought of having to be so far away from you for so long. But rumors began to swirl on her infidelity, likely through his brother Joseph, and that her mother had discouraged her from moving forward with the marriage to Napoleon. So the couple, 
ended up breaking off the engagement in the summer of 1795. And it broke his heart. Napoleon really did love Desiree. And Napoleon's later experiences with women, even with Josephine, as we'll come to see, and his views on women, would forever be impacted by this tryst with Desiree. At least somewhat respectful of women prior to their breakup, his traditionalism notwithstanding, afterward, he would forever be a hopeless romantic, scorned. And to add further insult to injury, Desiree would go on to marry one of Napoleon's best marshals, one General Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte. Now, as I've mentioned, we'll dive into Bernadotte and the other marshals a little later on, but Bernadotte certainly turned out to be one of the more infamous, being invited as Crown Prince of Sweden with Desiree as his royal consort and joining the fight against Napoleon during the War of the Sixth Coalition. Eventually rising to king in 1818, the Bernadotte line survives to this day, and the current king, Carl XVI Gustav, is a direct descendant of Bernadotte. So, fun fact. So while Napoleon was enjoying the sights of Paris, the government in Paris knew that they needed to vote on a new constitution and reorganize the power structure to ensure another Robespierre could not come along again. A checks and balances form of government, if you will. The summer of 1795 was dedicated to figuring this difficult question out, especially as royalist elements were beginning to rear their heads again. They, too, understood the fragile power dynamic in the Thermidorian Convention, and they sensed an opportunity to put Louis's brother, Louis XVIII, back on the throne. And so, in response, on August 23rd, 1795, the Constitution of Year 3, the third implemented since the beginning of the French Revolution, established a bicameral legislature and a five-man executive committee. Now, we, of course, know this committee as the Directory, and their arrival came as great news to many of France's enemies who, much like the royalists within France, believed they had a great opportunity to defeat a vulnerable France with a new, untested government. Now, when we covered the Directory briefly at the end of Episode 3, we mentioned how ineffective the government has come to be viewed by most historians. A lot of this was due to its inherent corruption and incompetence in the face of growing threats, both external and internal. And there would be an internal threat brewing quickly. Shortly after the Directory's formation, the departments of Paris grew increasingly restless, with tensions boiling over for previous disdain for the Committee of Public Safety and the seemingly weak response from the Thermidorian government for reprisals on a government that inflicted so much pain and suffering on the local community. Violence and insurrectionary threats were looming. The new government, barely a few months old, was already on the verge of collapse. And in order to survive... They needed a hero, and a miracle. And so, as the protests began to gain momentum, it would be on that one fateful evening that a young General Napoleon Bonaparte would hear the commotion from the theater he was attending. And next week, I'm going to talk all about what he did on that fateful evening in the morning that followed, October 5th, 1795, or in the French Revolutionary calendar, 13 Vendemire.